Welcome back to the multi-week study I'm doing called A Bible Prophecy Timeline. This is part three, which I'm calling More on the Ten Kings and the Seven-Headed Beast. It's being released as a video and an audio podcast, and you can find links to both at the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. I decided to take a pause before we move on to the next part in the timeline and take an episode to just answer a few questions that people have sent in, which I feel are important to the discussion so far and should be addressed in detail before we move on. The first one starts out by quoting Revelation 17, 12 through 13. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. The question then follows, The text above says that the ten kings do not receive royal power until they receive it with the beast for one hour. This text seems to suggest that the ten kings and the Antichrist receive their power at the same time. If that's the case, then how can there be a global government in place beforehand? Let me start off with my long answer to this question, and then I'm going to work my way through the scriptures to explain my answer. I think that the Ten Kings rule in some lesser sense before the Antichrist takes over, perhaps some kind of bureaucratic coalition, but not true rule as in authoritarian control. It is only after the three kings have been conquered and the Antichrist's war-making ability has been fully realized that the Ten Kings submit to him. Their capitulation also coincides with the Antichrist's apparent death and resurrection and his subsequent declaration of deity at the midpoint. The Ten Kings receive their royal authority at the same time he does. He is crowned king at the midpoint, not a second before, and they are crowned sort of co-kings with him in this new theocratic system at that point. The one hour is a reference to the three and a half year period, which is explicitly the time that the Antichrist is given authority for, which begins at the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. This is alternatively referenced as a short time, a time times and a half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days, etc. in the book of Revelation as the time given for the Antichrist's authority to reign. Let me start off by reviewing why I said that the Ten Kings must come before the Antichrist from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7.24 says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. So it seems to explicitly say in Daniel 7.24 that the little horn, the Antichrist, comes, quote, after the ten kings chronologically and seems to reiterate that with the word former. And the fact that he is uprooting or subduing three of those kings upon his arrival is also highly suggestive that the ten kings were in power before this and that he does in fact come on the scene after the ten kings have been established. So do we have a conflict here? Does the Antichrist come before the Ten King Coalition, as Daniel seems to suggest? Or do the Antichrist and the Ten Kings all get their power at the same time, as it seems to suggest in Revelation 17? So let's go through this verse, and I will start off by reading it again. It says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Let's first take this phrase, who have not yet received royal power. 
I think the best way to understand this is that these kings had not yet received royal power in John's day. There is precedent for this interpretation of John referring to his own time as a way to show chronology, as in verse 10 of this chapter. And I think it also happens to be the face value interpretation of this verse. So it's basically just saying, you haven't seen these guys yet from John's perspective, but it doesn't give us any information about when they might be seen, however. The next line says, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Let's start off by figuring out when the Antichrist gets his royal authority, because if they all get this royal authority at the same time, then it will help us get a timestamp for this event. I think one of the clearer passages about this is found in Revelation 13, verse 5, which says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So if the Antichrist is this beast, then we can know that he gets his authority for 42 months, or 3.5 years, which is a reference to the final three and a half year period after the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. Because of verses like this and several like it, it is commonly understood that the Antichrist begins his kingship or ruling authority at the midpoint when he declares himself to be God in the temple. This is an important point. He is not king, or at least does not have the type of authority that Revelation 13 considers, quote, authority, until after the midpoint. So if the ten kings get their ruling authority at the same time that he does, then they also get it at the midpoint. I think there are lots of ways to show this, but one way is later on in Revelation 13 when it talks about this authority and how it's over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. And worship is something that would only happen after the midpoint, after he has declared himself to be God and forces the mark of the beast and the image of the beast and all that. I think one obvious way to see that the Antichrist does not have complete authority as described in Revelation 13 before the midpoint is the fact that he is warring with three of the ten kings initially until he subdues them. In other words, if he had authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, he would not need to be warring with at least three nations, but probably more than that if we look at Daniel 11. In fact, I think you can see this capitulation in real time, so to speak, in Daniel 11, 40 through 45, where it makes it clear that through his overwhelming power and warfare, he causes these kings to submit to him, obviously suggesting that they weren't in submission before that. So Daniel 11:40 says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never... 
has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be written in the book, etc., etc. So the idea is that through his show of force, he gains control over them. This is a picture of that. He shall become ruler of their gold and silver as a result of this war with Egypt. He gets to become ruler of their precious things. It says after the battle, they follow at his train. So this is a picture of the capitulation brought about by his warfare. Though I still would say that the control he is getting in these passages is not the same kind of control he gets a little bit later at the midpoint, but I think that all develops rather quickly at the end of these wars in Daniel 11, which I hope to talk more about in the next uh, uh, episode. So we know that the 10 kings get this authority that this verse is talking about with the beast at the midpoint. But what about before that? Did the 10 kings just show up out of nowhere at the midpoint to get their co-authority with the beast? I think the next part of this verse refutes that idea. It says, these are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So it further explains that they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They had both power and authority before the midpoint that they hand over to the Antichrist. And yet the first part suggests that they all get the same kind of authority at the midpoint. So what's the deal? The resolution to this problem is in Daniel, as we've seen. The kings exist before the Antichrist arrives. The Antichrist wars with the kings, at least three of them, and subdues them. But as we'll see next time, the Antichrist seems to die and resurrect from the dead just after these battles are won, just outside of Jerusalem. And it is after this death and apparent resurrection, the strong delusion of 2 Thessalonians 2, I think, that everything changes and the world goes into a theocracy with the Antichrist as the God King. And those 10 kings are now kind of, I guess, regional monarchs that carry out his demands. And I'm guessing here is I don't think the exact nature of the government style is fleshed out. I described the final head of the beast in the first episode in this series as being the same empire, but with two stages. The Ten Kings, as we saw in that episode, will exist before the 70th week, and they will continue to exist and rule, albeit with a different structure, until the end of the 70th week at Armageddon, and the destruction of Mystery Babylon, which they actually play a role in. So in conclusion on this question, I think that Daniel 7 and Revelation 17 are not in conflict. The ten kings with their world government do come before the Antichrist, but they all, the ten kings and the Antichrist, get their true second stage theocracy authority at the midpoint. Moving on to the next question that I want to cover this week, it says, at about 19 minutes into your first video, you say that the Bible is silent on whether the ten-part final empire lasts a long time or not. What about Revelation 17.10, which says that the kingdom that has not yet come must remain only a little while? That doesn't give us a specific time period, but it does seem to rule out a long time, probably not multiple generations long, unlike the earlier kingdoms. Your thoughts on how this little while applies to the timeline? So yes, in the first video I mentioned that the final head or ten king world government could last a long time before the Antichrist arrives. I said it could be a year or multiple generations. So is this verse in Revelation 17.10 refuting that idea that that government could be a long period of time? I don't think it is, but it will take some explaining. Let's begin by reading a passage in Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. 
And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Here we see the seven-headed, ten-horned beast described in detail. After it is initially described, the text begins to focus only on one of its heads. I think it's important to see that scripture begins to refer to this seventh head as the beast, i.e. the king who we know of as the Antichrist. Pretty much from here on out, the word beast is synonymous with just the seventh head and the person of the Antichrist. One notable line is, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So this is the first time it singles out one of the heads, and the one thing that it says about it is that its deadly wound was healed. Now, I think the plain reading suggests that this is the Antichrist, but I think we get confirmation of this a few verses later when it says, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Remember that the deadly wound that was healed was a characteristic of the seventh head, and now we see that that characteristic is being used with the term the first beast, who just about everyone recognizes as a title of the person of the Antichrist, with the second beast in this verse being a reference to the false prophet. And again in verse 14, we see that the deadly wound idea is applied to the Antichrist, which gives a strong confirmation along with several other places in Revelation 17, that the seventh head is a reference to the person of the Antichrist when it counts. What I mean by when it counts is that I can make a solid argument that the seven heads must be a reference to kingdoms as well as kings, but scripture seems to make it clear which one, kings or kingdoms, it wants you to have in mind in a given situation. And I think that's what's happening here in Revelation 17.10. It wants you to know that the king aspect is in view it starts out in verse 10 saying, They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So why is it important to make this distinction? Because if we're talking about kings, then the seventh king is the Antichrist, who, as we saw earlier, won't be a king, won't get his kingdom until the midpoint. It is only after that that he builds Mystery Babylon and populates it with his worshipers, as we'll see in later studies. The short time, then, is a reference that we've seen all over the Bible and is a reference to the final three and a half years. I believe this is also a continuation of a theme started in Revelation 12, which says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And two times in this chapter, it mentions the three and a half year period, whether it says 1,260 days or the time times and half a time to refer to this short time. So although I think it's clear that the little while here is a reference to the Antichrist's allotted short time to rule the earth in his theocracy, i.e. 3.5 years, I don't think it necessarily applies to that first phase with the ten kings that we have seen must come before the Antichrist. 
I will say that my early example that it could be one or a thousand years was probably hyperbole. My main point, though, was to drive the point home that the generation that sees this Ten King thing develop might be in for a lot of dystopian madness before the Antichrist arrives. My gut says that this would last over a generation, or at least that the Antichrist would prefer it to last one generation, because you really need one generation of censorship to exist in order to sort of wipe out good doctrine. And I think that he wants to wipe out as much good doctrine as he possibly can before he arrives, specifically about Bible prophecy, in order to soften the landscape, so to speak, for his deception. It really can't be overestimated how much damage was done to the Antichrist when our Lord gave away his whole scheme on the Mount of Olives. And I'm sure the Antichrist would prefer people to forget as much of that as possible before he arrives. The final question I want to address is a quick one. This one goes back to part one, and it has to do with the specific kingdoms involved in the symbolism of the seven-headed beast. So I mentioned like Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and all that stuff. And I had made the comment about how it seemed that a uniting factor with all these empires was that they all controlled Israel. And I said I couldn't think of another empire that did that in history. I think this is all the ones that did that. Uh, many people sent comments in about the Ottoman Empire, which did control the land of Israel. However, I should have been more clear. I don't consider any empire between 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed and Israel as a nation went into the diaspora, until 1948, when the nation of Israel was once again established to be a candidate. Yes, the Ottoman Empire controlled Israel during this time, and I'm sure there were a few Jews living there, but no one would argue that it was a nation at that time. If we included empires that just controlled the land of Israel, it would mean that we would need to fit the British Empire into these heads as well, as it also controlled the land of Israel, but not the nation of Israel. I think there are a lot of other reasons that the Ottoman Empire is not in view here, which I discuss in my book, The Islamic Antichrist Theory Debunked, which is available for free as a book at my website, BibleProphecyText.com, or even as a free eight-hour audiobook on my podcast feed. So check the links in the description for all of that. 